Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House in Virginia Beach. church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. For Harold Warner, Pastor Russ Castillo, and Pastor Joe Campbell, uh, he told me not to waste any more of his time, so let's give our brother a big hand as he comes this morning. <laughs> yes, 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 amen, hallelujah. Okay. book of Daniel, chapter 11, this morning, the book of Daniel, chapter 11, verse 32. Uh, this morning is a three-course power breakfast uh, in the Word of God. There's a very famous English sculptor by the name of Henry Moore, who, when he turned 80 years old, was interviewed, and they asked him if he now knew what was the secret of life. You know, whenever people are asked those kind of questions, it makes me nervous, and you tend to dismiss them because it opens the door to all kinds of inane answers. Yeah, like, well, the secret is a shot of whiskey in the morning and a good cigar at least once a week, or, you know, so I don't... uh, but. When he was asked this question, he really was on target. And he said, the secret of life is to have a task, something you do your entire life, something you bring everything to every minute of the day for your whole life. And the most important thing, it must be something that you cannot possibly do or something that is bigger than you are. And the question this morning that we need to answer is, does the Christianity we preach, does the Christianity we teach and live and exhort other people to, does it capture this spirit? Does the Christ, does the Savior who saved us bring us uh, into this dimension? Because if we're going to affect the world, if we're going to be men of God in this age, if we're going to touch people around us, and this word and this truth needs to live within us. I want to read Daniel 11, one verse, verse 32. And I want to talk to you about men of exploits. It says, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. I want to talk to you about the disturbing trend today. There was a book released in the year 2000 by Stephanie Goodman that was called The Kinder, Gentler Military. And what this book was chronicling and lamenting 
is that our military readiness is being sacrificed on the altar of political correctness. That we have a lot of people who are more interested in social experimentation than they are with national security. And she made reference to things like uh, that they have come up with gender-integrated basic training. In other words, basic, we don't want to make it so hard because that way both men and women can compete and complete it. Boot camp has been transformed from a tear them down and build them back up experience to one devoted to boosting recruits' self-esteem. Recruits used to have to earn the designation of soldier. Now they're considered one from day one. Obstacle courses are now called confidence courses. Teamwork has been given a whole new meaning because carrying a wounded 200-pound comrade or handling a fire hose required twice as many women as men. And so they have now ability groups. They place limits on drill sergeants, motivational techniques. They even have training timeouts when the poor deers get too tired. And she went on to talk about time once devoted to physical training now gets wasted on sensitivity training. Recruits learn that looking at a female for more than three seconds constitutes sexual harassment. Performance standards have been gender-normed, and women get a three-minute grace period to complete their three-mile run, and uh, many things like this. It has a lot of people shaking their heads and asking the question, what happened to the warrior culture that once infused uh, our armed forces? Now, I mention that because the same kind of social and cultural pressures are behind what's called the feminization of the church. There's a book that was recently by David Morrow called Why Men Hate Going to Church. And it's not an anti-woman or it's not a sexist book, but he's a concerned observation about our times and about the emphasis today and how feminized everything in the church has become. And his main point is that the church today has become feminine, introspective, focused on comfort as opposed to courage. And what we've done is we've created an environment where masculine men and young men are not being reached or they are withdrawing. If we could put this into a simple term, the disturbing trend today involves an inactive faith. And if you know your Bible, you know that that's a misnomer because James says that faith without works is dead or it is useless or ineffective. It's uh, like the cartoon that was uh, showed a uh, typical uh, church building, uh, and it was entitled The Light Church. This is the billboard in front of the church. Uh, it said 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services. We have only eight commandments, your choice. We use just three spiritual laws, Everything you've wanted in a church and less. 
Now, this was James's concern a millennia ago that he says it's possible for church attenders to slide along with a bogus faith that makes no real difference in the way that they lived. And specifically, it is a faith that lacks vigor. It is a faith void of spiritual energy and spiritual strength. It makes no difference in the way that they live. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard years ago told a parable about a place he called Duckland. And in Duckland, all the ducks dutifully came to church every Sunday, waddling through the doors, down the aisles, into their pews where they comfortably squatted and when they were settled, uh, the hymns were sung and the duck minister waddles up to the pulpit, uh, opens the duck Bible and begins to read, Ducks, uh, you have wings and with wings you can fly like eagles. You can soar into the sky. Ducks, uh, use your wings. And it was a very uplifting scripture. It was a very uplifting uh, time. And all the ducks quacked uh, a hearty amen. And then plopped down from their pews and began to waddle home. And his point was that it made no difference at all. See, that's the trend today, and I can see three consequences resulting from this. One, as the title of the book suggests, is the church's failure to reach and to challenge men, or to be able to challenge what is in a man or a masculine spirit. And how to best describe this uh, was illustrated by what was called the thermostat wars. How many married men know that there's a difference between men and women when it comes to the temperature setting in your house. You know, a man comes home from work, uh, steps into his house, and he says, you know, it's hotter than bleep in here. And he proceeds to uh, turn the thermostat, uh, you know, down to 68 degrees. His wife immediately puts on a sweater because she's very comfortable at 74 degrees. Or 77. And, you know, churches have spiritual thermostats. And today they are usually set by default on 77 degrees of comfort, conformity, and ceremony. And not on challenge, courage, and commitment. And this author said these words, ignore what's being preached from the pulpit. And look at what actually happens on Sunday morning. Almost everything about today's church, its teaching styles, its ministries, the way people are expected to behave, even today's popular images of Jesus, is designed to meet the needs and expectations of largely female audience. Church is sweet and sentimental, nurturing and nice. Women thrive in this environment. In modern parlance, women are the target audience of today's church. And what's happened, uh, and the lament there, is what has happened to the manly men, men who live out a commitment uh, to Christ. The church has failed uh, to reach and to challenge man. The second consequence is that the world is passing the church by. Now, I don't, you know, never mind all the mega church hype. The ch- you know what? Sinners aren't watching that. 
When I was a sinner, I wasn't listening to Christian radio. I wasn't, you know, I couldn't wait to, you know, but I wanted to turn on TV and, you know, there wasn't my, you know, appetite whatsoever. But the world is passing the church by, especially those that are young and those that are looking for a challenge. Someone said that uh, the church today uh, has a reputation as a place for women, weirdos, and wimps. And so here we are in Generation X, a generation that has promoted extreme sports, uh, that appeals to an adventure-starved generation, uh, and the church is failing to uh, reach that generation. David Morrill said, if we're using the language of romance to describe the Christian walk, we're going to attract more women than we do men. But if we use the language of conflict, of achievement, of victory, men will instinctively understand us because that language is written onto a man's soul. And the third consequence is that people are impotent to stand up to the spiritual and the moral pressures and seductions of the last days. See, the text that we read from this morning is talking about Antichrist and his designs. And it says he will flatter those who hate the things of God and win them over to his side. This kind of inactive faith is impotent to stand against the pressures and seductions of the last days. So we'll look secondly at the singular remedy Because how many know there is no such thing as a comfort zone in the kingdom of God? Never has been, never will be. From the day that I was saved, November 15, 1970, my life has been challenged continuously to follow Jesus Christ with all of my heart. There is no comfort zone. I was reading about some military recruiters representing the Army, Navy, and Marine Corps that uh, were to address a high school assembly of seniors and It was a 45-minute assembly. They were to each have 15 minutes, but the Army and Navy recruiters got carried away. So when it came time for the Marine to speak, he only had two minutes. And he walked up to the podium to speak. And when he arrived there, he stood there, utterly silent for 60 seconds, half of his time. And finally he said, I doubt whether there are two or three of you in this room who can even cut it with the Marine Corps. But I want to see those two or three immediately in the dining hall when we are dismissed. He turns, walks off the stage. And when he arrives in the dining hall, you know, students who were interested in him were a mob because he understood something, and that is the commitment comes from being able to appeal to a heroic dimension in every human heart. Now, our text captures this this morning because it says the people that know their God shall be strong. The word means courageous or fortified. The people who know their God shall be strong. How many know it is going to take a dimension of courage to be able to stand up for Jesus Christ and for truth in these last days. And the Bible's diagnosis and its comprehensive answer is the priority of knowing God. The people who truly know their God, 
the people who truly are walking in relationship with their God shall be strong. He said, if you want to live above the mundane, if you want to rise above the boring and the predictable and the defeated, then know the Lord. See, that is the very heart of the new covenant. Jeremiah said, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. At the heart of the new covenant is this reality. The people that know their God shall be strong. And I want to declare to you this morning that there is no greater treasure in all of life than this. Everything in the Christian life flows from this reality. This is what Jesus pinpointed when he said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jeremiah understood correct priorities when he said, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. Jeremiah said, if you're going to boast, you need to boast about something that really means something, and that is that you understand and know me. See, this was Paul's evaluation of life. In Philippians 3, verse 8, when he said, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things and consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. He is evaluating his life. He said, You know what? Everything uh, pales in comparison to the exceeding greatness of the treasure of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And in comparison to that, everything else is rubbish, refuse, dung, bleep. That's what he's saying. I was actually studying for this, and there's an article in our paper about a retired University of Arizona professor whose name is Paul S. Martin. And the article said this, it began, said for retired UA professor Paul S. Martin, his first glim, glimpse of prehistoric dung from a ground sloth nearly a half century ago was a life-changing experience. And it begins to talk about, you know, his 50-year career as an anthropologist there, and he helped author a number of journals and articles and is proposing reintroducing some of these uh, distant relatives, these prehistoric large animals into North America. But it has a picture of him, uh, and it says, uh, Tucson scientist Paul S. Martin holds a piece of sloth dung that predates the existence of modern man. And I'm thinking to myself, here you are, 77 years old, and you are holding in your hand what your life represents. (laughs) 
What, what changed your life? Well, you know what? I was a young man, had no direction, no purpose, but someone shared with me the indescribable riches of Jesus Christ, and my life was transformed. I discovered God's will and destiny. I'm going to heaven. Well, what changed your life? Sloth dung? Paul said, I count everything as sloth dung compared to the incomparable riches of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. The people that know their God shall be strong. You know, the root of this disturbing trend today, this inactive faith, the feminization of the church is largely the result of the way that we have portrayed Jesus Christ to people. And we have given an incomplete picture of Christ, of the Christian life, and of the church. In this same book, David Morrow said, I think it starts with the way we portray Jesus Two or three hundred years ago, he was, you know, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. He was almost a scary character. Today, he's much more soft, caring, comforting fellow who is focused more on helping you in your personal life than on establishing some great kingdom here on earth. The emphasis is much more on therapeutic personal relationship with Jesus rather than on a great transcendent cause, which is what would interest me. See, we've given an incomplete picture of Jesus. We emphasize the Christ of comfort, but not the Christ of calling, of courage, of commitment, and of challenge. You said, well, didn't Jesus minister comfort? Absolutely. He brought comfort to the afflicted. He healed. He delivered. He bound up the brokenhearted. He encouraged those in any difficulty. In fact, he surmised the whole human drama as people who were like sheep having no shepherd. That Jesus came to bring and to minister comfort. But I want you to notice something. That the comfort that he was uh, talking about was comfort for outsiders. It was for those who had been neglected and abused by religion. That comfort was not for the religious. We should always be careful not to lose sight of the same Christ who challenged the religious establishment of his day. The same Christ who cleansed the temple. The one who was able to reach out to a Samaritan, to an adulterer, to a leper. The Christ who died on the cross. The same Christ who appealed to strong men who when he uttered that command, follow me. There was something about that that reached fishermen, it reached zealots, it reached tax collectors. We need to be careful that we give a complete picture of Christ. See, in the same way, the church, it's been said, is called to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. But we get that backwards, don't we? 
the church today does offer comfort, but mostly to those in the church. The church should be a comforting experience, a warm. And so we have feel-good worship services, feel-good sermons, feel-good leadership designed to make and to keep people feeling good about themselves. And what's happened is that the church has largely become a glorified support group. Counseling center offering psychological help mostly to its own. But the problem is that that's only one aspect. And the church whose focus is only on comfort without courage will fail to reach this generation and will not be the church of Jesus Christ as we see spelled out in this book. The people, the men that know their God shall be strong. Let me close and talk about a call to action. Because when we emphasize the importance of the masculine spirit, that is not to be confused with male domination. A masculine spirit is not a place where women or where feminine virtues are despised, but we're talking about cultivating a masculine spirit of strength, of resolve, of honor, and of nobility. This is what Paul was reaching at in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, when he says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, do everything in love. See, we're talking about courageous followers of Jesus Christ. I'm reading a book, and it is a devotional book, and it would be one that I would recommend highly to everyone. It's a book called On This Day, and it basically is about figures throughout church history, very brief excerpts of their life, and while it does have a a little Catholic tinge in some of the people it talks about, it's still very much worth reading. And in this book, he mentions two Protestant preachers by the name of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. They were both 16th century Uh, preachers who were burned at the stake. They were Protestant preachers whose preaching and whose convictions offended Queen Mary, who was a Catholic. Both of them were condemned to burn at the stake. And while burning at the stake, it was Latimer who turned to Ridley with these famous words. He said, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Ridley, play the man. And here in the book of Daniel is a call that has never, ever changed because it says the people that know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. One translation said they will display strength and take action. Another said they shall be strong and do great things. You know, when I was a brand new convert, I used to thrill, and still do, at reading the book of Acts. 
And I think the thing that Saul inspired me the most about the book of Acts is that it revealed to us a God and a people of action. That's why it is called the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And it captures something that is a call for this day and for this hour because the mystery of life is the mystery of God and man working. It is no accident that the final gospel snapshot in the gospel of Mark chapter 16 verse 20 is it says they went out and preached everywhere the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. The picture that is frozen in that verse that the Holy Spirit wants us to see is they went everywhere preaching the gospel, the Lord working with them, confirming the word with signs following. It is a picture of God and man working on a personal level. This is the challenge in each and every one of our lives in Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is that mystery of God and man working. You and I working out what God is working in our hearts. And the reason this is so important is that uh, the pillars uh, of discipleship uh, involve this truth. The three pillars of discipleship that most of you are familiar with and we've heard preached on many, many times is the pillar of exampleship. That you and I are not very, very good at taking orders, but we are very good at following examples and imitating. That the priority of exampleship is the basis, the pillar of discipleship, the pillar of impartation. The discipleship is more than just a program. It's more than reading a book, but there is an actual conferral of spiritual grace from heart to heart that is the basis of discipleship. And the third pillar is the pillar of involvement. The disciples are made in the doing. They are made in the doing. The people that know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. They are made in the doing. Jesus, Mark chapter 4, said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Then that simple statement is the truth that what Christ furnishes us with is first of all a relationship with him. He furnishes us with a process whereby we can be changed from who we are to who he wants us to be. And he furnishes us with a purpose that is far greater than ourselves, that we can give ourselves to, that we can bring everything to every minute of every day for the rest of our lives. And discipleship, is the Lord's way to reach the world, to change people, to build the church, and to populate heaven. See, this book that I hold in my hand this morning has a distinct power and purpose to it. When Pastor Mitchell mentioned last night the latest rage and the 
Christian world, and uh, it, it is just a mystery and a puzzling thing to me how that you can address a huge audience of people who are there, and, and they've got, you know, the TV homes in, and they've got their notebooks, and I'm listening, but he's not saying anything. What are you writing? Let me see, Monday, I need to go grocery shopping. You know, what, what are you writing? Because, you know, what Harold Warner has to say doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't really carry any power whatsoever. But what this book says carries distinct purpose and distinct power to our lives. You know, pastors and disciples all the time want to ask you the key, the secret about making sermons. You know what? You know, if you will preach the Bible, that's a good start. If you will make sure... You know what, if you will make sure, I'm not going, you know, what is the, what is the, you know, if I am preaching, if I am saying what God says, I am on very sturdy ground. And 2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want you to notice that there is a distinct purpose that this book has. It is for correcting. It is for rebuking. It is for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped to every good work. It is talking about a divine enabling that we fulfill God's design purpose and task for our lives. The people who know their God shall be strong and shall take action. The message translation is not actually a translation, but it says this. There's nothing like the written word of God for showing you the way to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the Word, we are put together and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. We are put together and shaped for the tasks that God has for us. He's talking about men, women, people of action. That the end result of a genuine relationship with God, that strength, that call, and that courage is that we are put together and shaped for the various tasks that God has for our lives. It is a divine enabling that casts before us a vision for the equipping of the saints to fulfill God's will to stand for Jesus, to stand for truth in these last days, to stand for righteousness, to make impact on those around us, to be a people of compassion, to edify and build the church. The end result of the preaching of the word of God is that you and I be equipped for that task. The people who know their God shall be strong and take action. Ridley? Play the man. The reason this is so vital and so important is that this is the only kind of faith that really will stand the test 
of the last days. In contrast to those who Antichrist corrupts by flattery, in contrast is the people who know their God shall be strong and shall take action. That simply being religious will not cut it. It won't cut it. You can be popular for a while. It can have its moment in the sun. It can have its 15 minutes of fame. But it, this Bible has in it a distinct call to action. It is the promise of our lives being strengthened and equipped to fulfill God's pleasure and God's purpose for our lives. And the kind of preaching and the kind of environment we must cultivate and contend is an environment that ministers comfort to those that are hurting. Absolutely. There are people who come into our churches every week that are desperate. I remember years ago reading, I believe it's true, that in every any given church service, 5% of the people in that congregation are experiencing some kind of major life crisis. We are to create and cultivate an environment that is able to minister to them comfort, strengthening them with might by the Spirit in the inner man. But at the same time, there has to be an environment that's created that challenges people and challenges men to rise up and to do the will of God in their generation. That there's something there that challenges them. You know what? By the grace of God, I can be what God wants me to be. That there needs to be an environment that challenges and reaches down into their spirit that says, you know what? If God could use him, then maybe God could use me. You know, that's the beauty of our fellowship. I mean, if all we were was a fellowship of superstars, we'd never be able to make disciples because everybody would look, well, that's just, you know, he, he's the, they're the superstar. But when, you know, you get to know everybody, well, that's just sauce. And if God could use, hey, God could use me. And you know what? If he can live clean, if he can live right, if he can, there's, I, I can do that. And we need to cultivate, and we need to contend for an environment in our lives and in our churches that will do that, that will minister comfort to those that are afflicted and it will call men to courage and commitment and action to live out the will of God in the day and in the hour that we're living in. You want to know the secret of life? Find something a whole lot bigger than you are that you can give your entire life to. You can bring all that you are to every day, every moment, for the rest of your life. And I can't think of a better description of what the Christian life is about this morning. Amen. Let's have Brother Russ Castillo back. We thank you again for listening. Do you want to receive updates from our church in your inbox? Make sure to sign up at our website, vvph.org. If this message has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting our ministry with a generous donation? Please visit our website, vvph.org, and scroll down to find the Give button at the bottom of the page. We would be so grateful for your support. Until next time, love God and love people.